Thanks for listening to Looking Forward Our Way. We'd like to ask a favor from you. Would you give us some feedback on our podcast? We've made it really easy to do so. Click on the link in our episode show notes. That link will take you to our podcast Google My Business page. Now, you may have to sign into your Google account. From there, we'd appreciate your feedback on the podcast overall, feedback on a specific episode, or a suggestion on what you would like to see us cover in a future episode. All your feedback is really appreciated. Your comments only help us create episodes that will keep us all looking forward our way. Oftentimes, their circumstances lead them to me. So they have experienced a a rocky situation handling the affairs for one of their parents or for one of their siblings, Mm -hmm. and they've been drug in. And they say, we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that we don't leave that same mess for our children. We are looking forward our way. From Studio C in the 511 Studios in the Brewery District, south of downtown in Columbus. This is Brett. With me, as always, is Carol. How are you? I'm good, Brett. Thank you. You know, we are going to have an incredibly important episode today that I really believe will be of great benefit to our listeners. So many of us have had to move through the difficult steps of making decisions with our parents regarding regarding their housing and downsizing. But a more critical situation is determining the legal steps to be taken, um, whether they occur before or after the passing of a family member. Today, we want to help our listeners understand the important legal steps they should be discussing with family and the ramifications uh, should those decisions not be made. Today's guest is Lorray Schrader from Schrader Law. She's an estate planning and elder law attorney. We met each other on another podcast. Now it's been going on three years ago. I had to look and see. But she was a guest on uh, Business Inspires, uh, the podcast from Tri-Village Chamber Partnership. From that episode, I had mentioned to Carol, we have to bring Lorray in because she did a great job on that podcast. And she'll answer all the questions we need about elder law and estate planning. Right. So that's why we're so excited about this. This is going to be good. Thank you. I'm excited to be here again, um, Lorraine Schrader. And um, I've been practicing for a few years now since graduating from Capital University. And I'm very excited to be here. This is an area that I'm passionate about. So thank you for the opportunity to teach listeners. That's been an important focus for my for my practice. When we developed the podcast, we were looking at sort of the pillars that we wanted to to look at and to talk about. And um, with my background in employment, that was an easy one, you know. And, but little by little, Brett and I kept saying, we need to do something on on legal issues. And that's, you know, when, when your name came up. So thank you again, you know, for joining us. Um, let's first discuss your practice areas, but also your background, which is is varied. And, and uh, the decision to go into legal, into the legal profession was kind of a um, second career option for you. So let's talk about that. That's right. I spent 20 years working in financial services, um, in IT, corporate finance, and some time in marketing and research. And it was during my time in corporate America that I decided um, I would like to practice law. And I assumed I would spend time in business law. But when I went to law school, I described it as, I have some ideas, but I'm open to inspiration. And that's what it, in fact, was. Um, And it was the inspiration that came from my own personal life and family situation um, that I helped with my grandparents. And that's what really made me think, this is what I need to be doing. Um, And so I've continued to look for opportunities to build upon the personal experience. And now I'm credentialed to do it. And I now see 
um, things that I would have never advised my family to do had I known at the time that we were experiencing it. And so I have also felt that my experience in financial services helped supplement the advice I'm able to give families about um, things they may not realize that matter. Mm-hmm. Small example, you know, do you still own a life insurance policy on your adult child? Like that might be a problem when it comes to probate. Right. So I'm not giving them advice to go buy a policy or of any size, but the fact that I understand some people end up in situations like that. They don't even think about the fact that that's something that they own. And if they're not here to sign it over to someone else, then the court is the only one that can do it for them. And so the fact that I had that life experience um, from from my original first careers um, to couple with the experiences that I learned and the education um, and my advocacy for my own family, that's what I can bring to the table. And that's why I really enjoy and feel like I'm able to be a thorough um, guide and counselor. You know, one of the things that I think I've really started to uh, even more appreciate while we're doing the podcasting is looking at at how individuals have come to serving older adults, whether it's in law and medicine, um, because those weren't the areas that people were looking at. You know, in medicine, everybody wanted to either be in the ER or or um, uh, maternity. And now suddenly folks are watching what are the issues for older adults mm-hmm. and how can we help um, make life better uh, regardless of how old someone is. So thank you. I'm glad we've got somebody to give us some great information on these legal issues. Yeah. Well, you know, there are critical times we tend to avoid <laughs> – dare I say even run from, <laughs> aging parents, grandparents, other family members need to live safe, healthy lives. If we educate ourselves on the resources available to us, we could avoid future crises, uh, yet we often wait too long and the crisis occurs. When clients come to you, how do you convince them that basic legal steps like wills, uh, power of attorney will make a difference? Oftentimes, their circumstances lead them to me. So they have experienced um, a rocky situation handling the affairs for one of their parents or for one of their siblings, Mm -hmm. and they've been drug in. And they say, we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that we don't leave that same mess for our children. Um, Sometimes there's, you know, an unexpected health crisis or an event, and they realize then that they are ill-prepared. I received a call last week from someone who um, lives in Cambridge, and he'd broken his hip and was shipped to Cleveland Clinic. He was supposed to close the very next day on a condo. Oh, my gosh. So it was how do we get, right, a power of attorney <laughs> in force while he's um, several hours away? And we we managed to do that. But it was really a, a moment of need that made them realize that something needed to be done. So I, I, I joke that advanced planning, there's just a difference in how far advanced <laughs> you really are. Right. Um, and sometimes um, we also joke about the planning being horizontal versus vertical, right? So horizontal, you're flat on your back. When you're doing your planning, you're staring at the ceiling tile at the hospital. <laughs> I, I recommend vertical planning, needless to say. My mind went completely different. One. Horizontal, so you're covering a lot of different areas. No, it's just that you're up or down. Okay, I love that. Yeah, the like very I, most basic definition. You know, yeah, um, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And you have fewer options when you haven't right. planned in advance. If you have five years to wait 
to um, before you would need long-term care services, then you know you might be able to to keep some of your assets and not lose them to Medicaid or something like that. So. Back to your question, sometimes people find me because a child will drag their parent into me to say, um, Mom, speak with this person. I am leaving now, but this is the person that I know and trust. I, I want you to consider it because the adult child is working. They're a sandwich generation, and they know that the burden will fall on them right. to navigate things. And if they don't have the um, permission in place through the healthcare power of attorney or the financial power of attorney that's more general, um, then they know they're in a predicament. So that's also a little tricky when it comes to um, ethics and making sure I know who my client is. But that can easily be avoided. But sometimes it's the child just encouraging mom to, to make the phone call. And um, so clients come to me for, for all of those reasons. Did Have you noticed, um, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic now, but really during that period of time when we're all thinking more about issues, but I know I was thinking about, okay, if I became sick, what would I do? What did I need to set up? Sort of trying to make some plans ahead of time. Have you noticed people calling you because of having been closed down for the past year? Yes. There was an article that basically said the two things you need to accomplish during the pandemic, clean out your closets and get a will. There you go. (laughs) I thought that was fantastic advice. And it is true. I also found myself spending more time explaining the advanced directives that were already in place for my current clients um, because they were hearing stories about people getting off of life support that needed it from COVID. And they were concerned that if they had signed a living will, did that mean they weren't going to ever be put on a ventilator and offered life support if they just needed it for short duration? Were were they going to be able to come off of it? Mm -hmm. And had they signed anything that, you know, would change their outcome. And there were also people then who realized that they were potentially infallible and things were happening quickly to some who who fell ill. And so I think that was helpful for people to say, maybe this is the time mm-hmm. for me to, to, get, a, to get a will. Um, and the rest of the estate planning documents. And I actually feel that a general durable power of attorney is the estate planning document that if we were to start with anyone, it is the single most powerful one. It is the one that I say to people, like, who's going to get your mail forwarded? Who's sending in your extension for your taxes when you're in the hospital? Mm-hmm. Like, who's the one right. signing up for your Medicare annual enrollment window? Right. That really matters. Um, and you can't always go back. And sometimes you pay a surcharge for in perpetuity if you miss a certain window for prescription coverage or things mm-hmm. right along that mm-hmm. those lines. And so – the the will will help you dictate where you would like your assets to be distributed. And it makes it easier for those on the receiving end. But it is the general durable power of attorney that is the most important because I say you wake up potentially to the consequences of not having it. Mm-hmm. Like your stuff will eventually get where it's supposed to go. The state has a default for people that die without a will. Happens every day. May not be what you want, but something will happen eventually. Um, But it's that general durable power of attorney that will help someone make those important decisions for you. Um, It was just a year ago, just over a year ago now, that my mother ended up with food poisoning from some unpasteurized cheese. But it meant she, within 48 hours, went from sitting at her desk at work doing month-end clothes to life support. Wow. Oh, wow. And it also meant that she was had already given notice to leave the, um, where she was renting. She was in contract for a condo, right? Someone needed to step in and make lots of decisions for her in the moment. And without that authority, 
I would not have been able to do so. And mm-hmm. there would have been all sorts of, of, of complications. So as I mentioned, the the ability to file a tax extension, like the ability to shut off her cable for a few months while she's not going to be there, right? Everything requires formal permission. Right. And so um, that is really the, the, the linchpin of the estate planning documents and the place to start. You know, it's interesting because when you really start talking about all the little details, I don't think people realize how complicated their lives are and because it, they're living it every day. They don't think about a cable bill, a condo going, you know, into into the contract for it. it, it it's like we're just, you know, going about our merry way. And, and all of these things are huge issues. That's right. So, good. Hmm. Okay. So um, as you mentioned, you know, it, the will is the, you know, sort of the last step. Um, but end of life is not the only transition that we go through. Sudden illness and accidents can require health care, as you just said with your mom. Um, mental and behavioral health issues, such as Alzheimer's, um, can certainly change the dynamics of a family. Um, let's first explain for our listeners the various documents that can guide them through those situations. We've talked a little bit about, let's go into a little bit more depth. Sure. The healthcare power of attorney um, is really naming the agent who will represent you in decision-making when you cannot. One thing that differentiates it from the financial power of attorney is that it is effective only when you can't call the shots. Mm-hmm. You're still weighing in as long as you can, and that's one important difference. Um, that healthcare agent has permission to sign DNRs, to consent to procedures, um, to do almost anything that you can do with a few exceptions. Um, they are not allowed to withhold comfort care or pain relief, which is a choice that you could make for yourself, but not for others. But that is a very important document because it's not really just about um, exploratory surgery. You know, once someone's operating, do they go ahead and do the next thing while you're under anesthesia? But it's also, you know, which rehab facility is chosen right which home health agency is chosen it, it really has to do with the person as a whole and their their well-being and where they're living and what they're eating and mm-hmm. right what care they're getting and so that document is important for that reason people also don't realize that it can be customized there is a section for instructions yes, in right. the state template which isn't required but it was developed by the Ohio Hospital Association and the State Bar Association and it's the one that a lot of healthcare providers are familiar with and it's one that I've chosen to use in my practice along with some customizations in a special instruction section because paramedics know exactly which page to flip to and I think that that's really important um, to have a document that's recognizable and in that section I include things um, like you know it's your hope that it would be honored in full force in any state or country where you would travel. Does that make it so? Not necessarily, but wouldn't that be your hope? I really want to make sure that that's called out. I include um, other instructions if people have them uh, related to what procedures they would or wouldn't be willing to to, to undergo. And so that's an important document, again, to provide your emergency contacts. Mm -hmm. The other one is the general durable power of attorney. And it's general because it's everything except healthcare. And we recommend durable, which means even after you've lost capacity, your permission slip for someone to act on your behalf would continue in full force. That's when we need it the most. Right. And that's um, why I recommend the durable. It's durable. It will last through the duration of your disability Mm -hmm. or incapacity. And that document is powerful, um, as we discussed, the different – parts of life where you don't realize you would need to someone to step in and, and handle your business affairs. Um, there are also additional um, advanced directives, which is the living will, 
which is basically you making a decision for yourself in advance to say, if the following criteria are met and two doctors agree that the criteria is met, then and only then would I be okay with you discontinuing life-sustaining measures, the life support. And so people realize that it, it they don't always realize that it's about um, not listing who's going to decide about pulling the plug. That document has to do with the fact that you've decided. Right. You've decided for yourself and you've said, you know, if, if two doctors say that I am permanently unconscious, which are legal terms, right, permanently unconscious, right, the, um, the, the word we might say is brain dead, right, and there's zero chance of recovery, then it, it would make sense. Or if you're terminal um, and no hope of recovery and death is imminent, there are some very narrow criteria, and that's really what that document will do is let you speak for yourself, and then you take some of the burden off of your agents because you've you've already spoken to say, I don't want to live in perpetuity with the machines. Right. It's not yeah. saying I, I'm not willing to have some treatment that might involve life-sustaining equipment for a short period of time while they're trying to diagnose you to see if things are permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's an important thing t- to know. You know, I I think um, when I've talked to folks, because I have an estate and all the bits and pieces, and um, from the first time I had the estate to like two updates later, how much more paper is involved and how many more decisions are. Uh, but people, oh, I don't want to do that. And I, it's almost like they feel like they are wishing their sickness or death because they've done this paperwork. But in, in actuality, as you said, it is letting you make the decisions for yourself, but making sure somebody is there who's going to carry it out because you can't. Right. And the court is really the only body that can step in if you haven't in advance made arrangements right. for someone to decide for you, whether you need help during your lifetime or help with your affairs after you've right. passed. And so even if the court chooses a family member to do it for you, like the court is really the only one that, that can, can help. So you have strangers making decisions or family members who haven't talked to you about it and and nothing that that exists on paper well, to get you through. Even that. if you've talked about it, if it's not, you know, written down or in some cases I have seen a, a form downloaded from the internet um and there's something incorrect about the way it was notarized or um executed or the witnesses <laughs> You have two witnesses' names. Like that's great, but they're family members. They don't count. Right. They're not. Right. You know, they're not um, disinterested witnesses. And so you. Th- that's even worse, right? You think you have a plan in place. You think you have something, but there could be some gaping holes. And of course, the only time you realize that is when it's too late and someone you know can't get a new you know document signed. So it's about the advice uh, that goes along with getting the right information on paper. Not every power of attorney is. Um, the same. It has to do with what's really inside. Um, it could be three pages or it could be 30 pages. It depends on right. how much authority you want to give. All right. Well, you know, it sounds as though the most important step a family can take is to communicate clearly with each other. You may not be able to at least agree, but at least communicate. Uh, these dis- discussions are going to be difficult. Uh, they're feel, you know, we're all fearful of the future. We don't know what it holds. We're going to, you know, we're fearful of losing home, things, freedoms, you know, and of course facing death. Uh, What would you advise family members to do to support each other? But, you know, but be able to make those decisions needed to secure their financial security along with, you know, the safe living conditions. So I would encourage them to seek trusted professionals 
there are um, several attorneys that, that are in this line of work, and you need to find one that you really click with. You need to find someone that you're comfortable with so that you really can fully disclose all of the issues on your mind. Part of this is about peace of mind. And if you mm-hmm. can't disclose, they can't address the issues. And then you can't really feel that everything will work as smoothly as possible. Not that it's a guarantee anything will work smoothly ever, but it, certainly if you've left some, some holes. So encouraging people to find the right professionals that are accessible to them um, is one thing. R- reading up on it. Um, Everything varies by state, and especially if you're trying to care for a loved one out of state, you need to find um, resources in their area and, and do the homework. And especially now in this virtual world, you know, have someone that you trust get on the phone. It does change attorney-client privilege if someone participates in a meeting. But if there's a trusted advisor, whether it's a CPA, sometimes a financial planner, sometimes um, the children, if it's a, um, a situation where that's appropriate, then having a conversation – with an attorney can 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 help influence right what level of preparation is needed and how to how to navigate this. So, when you have a client interviewing you, what would you want them to ask you? What would be a question like you should ask this question to really help figure out if this person is the right attorney for you? What would be a good question to ask? Have they seen situations that are similar? Okay. And have they seen situations that are even worse? Because some people come to me like, oh, this child doesn't speak to that child, and I don't know who – or I don't have anyone to leave something to. I don't know who I could trust as an agent. I don't have any children. I don't have any siblings. I don't have any – so, like, how have you handled that before? Because I think that's reassuring to them. Like, you're not the most screwed up person I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so don't fear. But I think knowing – like. That there's some expertise there can be the peace of mind. Like, it's okay. We've got it. Like, yes, even that can be addressed, right? We can we can figure out a plan for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. that would be one of them. And just making sure that they're comfortable and um and they're willing to meet. You know, if if you're not able to leave your home, you're homebound and you're not able to navigate technology, someone that's gonna come to you might really matter. So, you know, when I receive a phone call, that might be a question that I would expect someone to ask of me if it really matters. Yeah. That is where you're you're a bit different too because you're dealing with your clients after hours and weekends, which I, I think is huge. Yes, that's right. I generally see families evenings and weekends, and that um, is in part based on you know a choice, but also I know that that's when some families need help and they can't get it the most. My mother and her sister struggled between the caregiving conferences with the nursing home when my grandmother was in a facility, um, and it's hard to take time out. And sometimes, even for busy executives or everyone in between, um, a Saturday morning is just um, a fine time. My Saturday mornings are the first to go <laughs> on my schedule. <laughs> right. I book some time out. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. And even evenings, sometimes even young families want to be able to put the kids to bed first before we have a conversation, and they can focus on it, especially when we're meeting on Zoom, right, and someone's screaming in the background. So. <laughs> Um, so accessibility for whatever um, you're you're trying to plan around, I think, really matters. Um, the other question I would encourage people to ask me is how I work with their other trusted advisors or whether, again, that's um, a CPA, a financial planner, mm-hmm. um, someone else in their life, because I really think of it as a three-legged stool. 
you could sub-optimize a decision for an estate plan um, to put everything in a trust and just, you know, take it off the table and no longer invest it and keep it out of, of the realm because we want to save it for Medicaid. But at the same time, you're maybe taking a bunch of money out of an IRA that you could have kept invested for a little while and maybe it wasn't the right time. Or maybe you could split that transaction across two tax years, right? There are there are ways to make those things work in harmony. And you have to find the right balance because some people come to me with different hang-up. Some of them are ridiculously concerned about tax or so probate adverse that they um, that they want to do that. And so if we don't think about it from multiple disciplines, then sometimes people can end up down one path. And if they only find one advisor that they trust, then they might end up with um, something that's a little more skewed than balanced. And so I find it really helpful when everyone is looking out for that client and we can all be on the same page and share information freely, um, again, after the client has consented, if that's what they're comfortable with, because then they know everybody is is working together. And, you know, sometimes people don't know what they don't know. And when you can bring in all of those experts, maybe they don't have a financial planner, but you can help them get through that process because they need one, um, they don't know what questions to ask. And so it's helpful when everybody is working together and making sure all the questions are on the table. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, listeners, if we haven't convinced you that this is important, we're going to start talking about ramifications of not taking, um, making decisions um, for yourself or, or older family members um, and you mentioned probate. You know, everybody cringes when they hear probate. So let's talk about what what happens if if somebody has no pieces of paper. Where does it go? So someone would step forward to the court to ask to be the representative. And if you have no piece of paper and and you have a child, even if they're out of state, um, they're not necessarily going to be eligible to be that person for you. So you have to find someone within the jurisdiction of the court. Um, to, to step forward to say this person has passed away, this is what they own, this is their next of kin, and this is what we um, propose um, doing, right? You have to put together all of the paperwork, and it has to be blessed by by those that have to be found. Sometimes it's not even clear, right, who the relatives are. If there is a will, then it's almost the same process, except you also submit the will for the court's consideration to be reviewed, but you still have to identify everybody that is um, an immediate family member for that person, the next of kin. And whether or not they're named in the will, those people need to sign off on the fact Mm -hmm. that that is the last will and testament. That is the person's list or inventory of assets. Um, That is the, the full list of next of kin. And so you need cooperation from more people than you ever imagine every step of the way. And people don't realize that. They think if they have a will... They've made it easy, and they have made it easier, but it's not necessarily easy. Um, sometimes it it isn't so complex, but I just know there are many steps, and so it depends on how quickly. Um, and again, do you have a champion that is good with follow-up, or are they the kind of people that have a lot of papers piled up on their kitchen counter, right, that they're going to mean to get to someday? Because that's what can drag out proceedings. Um, it's really um that's really where the where the holdup is, right? In the family members trying to go through each of the steps. Right. You know, I always sort of chuckle when I see the unclaimed funds listing in the newspaper and I'm, you know, sort of sit back and wonder how many of those folks had, you know, family members didn't know when they passed away that they had an insurance policy here or a bank account there or a a lockbox, you know, something with valuables in it. And it's just sitting there. (laughs) 
That's right. <laughs> I will add safety deposit boxes are one of the more complicated things to navigate. Isn't that amazing? Um, because you don't know if the will is locked inside and you need the court's permission <laughs> to even go find out if the will is locked inside. And that's not something that you can just do just because you have a key. And so, and you also just don't need a bunch of people, you know, with permission to go to your safety deposit box. And so that's a, that one is a really tricky, I, I think, um, many people still have them or feel that it's the most safe place to keep papers. I will actually say I advise most of my clients to file their will for safekeeping in advance of the probate court. And that is because no one has to scramble in the moment to wonder where the original is. Mm-hmm. It's even more complicated and expensive. I will stress expensive and time-consuming if the original can't be found. Having a copy of a will is not adequate. Um, it is a little easier than it used to be to prove a copy and to get it probated, but you have to go through great lengths to prove to the court that the original wasn't destroyed intentionally. And if someone's entire house burned down, that's one thing. But if it's just missing, right. now that's another. And so safety deposit boxes are definitely a, a little complicated. The other thing I will say is people don't think about putting a beneficiary on houses or cars. Right. And those are the two biggest reasons why I see people needing probate anyway. Houses and cars. Um, The BMV has a process where you could say, upon my death, let this person walk in with a form and your death certificate and let them have the car. And they'll walk out with a new title. And so people don't realize that. Or you could spend a couple thousand dollars to pay an attorney and wait six months, right? And potentially open up the estate to to creditors and, uh, and other bills that, you know, would not have been necessary um, to address again, depending on the situation. So that's that's one of the unexpected and and property. It is not uncommon for a piece of real estate to be the only probate asset left. Right? They have maybe no car at that point in their life. Maybe they have a beneficiary on their bank account or the investment account or the life policy, but they don't realize, oh, that house. Yeah. And if I'm not here to sign the deed, no one else can but the court. But in terms of if the individual had an estate plan chances are pretty good everything's in there. Right. If it's done correctly. If it's done correctly, it would address all forms of property. Um, The other thing I will, all form, meaning money, um, real property, real estate. The other thing I would say is it becomes significantly more complicated if there is property owned in multiple states or even counties. Probate is county specific. And so you just might have the the lucky opportunity to go through the process more than once if you're handling an estate for someone. so, yeah, keep that in mind, too, that you need to tell, oh, yeah, I have an eighth interest in my grandfather's you know, farm in West Virginia. OK, that's really good to know, because you might think you have everything squared away here and you kind of forget about that because you're not you know, there. It's not mm-hmm. part of your day to day. And so those are the things that lurk. And sometimes, you know, um, having an estate plan is comprehensive. Oh, yeah, except for that one little thing we forgot. And then you still have to prove the will. You still have to find the next of kin. You still have to go through those same basic steps, no matter how many assets are listed on that piece of paper. Good. So has the power of the will changed over time? Because in our minds, we that's our go-to. If you think about it, it's like, if you get a will, oh, you're covered. Has that changed over time that now it's just a piece of the whole thing that needs to be covered, that really wills don't do it all? It is just a part of an estate plan. And, it just seems like it's, wait a minute, what's changed? Right. Absolutely. It is just a part because the state legislator has allowed some additional options for 
transferring assets to others. And um, not all states allow you to put a beneficiary on your house, so to speak, um, or cars. And so there are alternatives that are more seamless. But I will say sometimes probate court could be your friend. I had a client come to me. He wanted he had gone through a painful probate situation in Texas with his brother, and he didn't want anyone to have to deal with that. He had four cousins in three states, and he wanted to <laughs> leave them each a piece of the house uh, you know, that he owned. And I am like, no, right? We need four people to agree on a realtor. <laughs> we need four people to sign the purchase of sale agreement. Like there's a difference between giving them ownership in that house and giving them 25% of the proceeds from the sale. Right. right. So in that yeah. case, it would have been more efficient for him to have someone take that piece of property through the probate system to say we have a single executor calling the shots, working directly with the court, and when the proceeds are available, a check will be sent to each of your cousins. <laughs> yes. No say in it other than that. Where yeah. the check's going to be mailed right. to. Right. And yeah. so that's where an attorney can come into play to really do the counseling to see if this is a situation where that tool is appropriate. Because there are some self-service of, of law, especially adding beneficiaries. But again, not every situation is it appropriate. Well, it, it, and it the the proceeds are going to be diminished if you're spending all of your time in and out of court and, and trying to deal with these folks all over the country. So it may not it may seem like that's not the the path you want to take, but that's kind of not just least resistance, but most economical. You also work with clients on other items, such as issues regarding Medicaid and Social Security. What are the most prominent issues that your clients bring to you regarding those benefits? It's common to have someone come to me with a power of attorney that's inadequate. So if someone is already in a long-term care facility, they think they've got a power of attorney in place. It may be adequate to to let that person go to the local bank or to sell your property, but the government agencies have a heightened level of permission required. And so that is the biggest problem I encounter because I do not always have a client who has capacity to sign a new one. Oh, my gosh. Right. And again, you think you have all of your ducks in a row and you don't when push comes to shove. And I'm like, that's inadequate. Like That doesn't give us the permission to do everything that we need to do, right, to get you qualified. The other um, – the other issue is that people come to me when the money's essentially all gone and they want to do planning and there are, again are fewer options available to them i have five months left <laughs> of savings right i've spent down from half a million and i have five months left what can we save like that's a scramble mode and there there are some things that can be done sometimes but that's also a really tough thing um the other issue they come to me with is i'm already on medicaid I still have a house. No one told me that there's going to be a lien against it because the nursing facility or the social worker or whatever agency um, got you qualified, right? But they didn't tell you about what happens after you pass away. You think, I got qualified. I still have this house. That's great. Everything is fine. But again, mm. they don't necessarily have a duty to to counsel you on the aftermath. So you think I have a house now and I'm why wouldn't I be able to say who it goes to when I pass away? And so that is a jaw-dropping moment, and I dread that when I – and I could just always see where it's going. The other issue that's related to to Medicaid and long-term care planning is people come to me with money in a trust that is not (laughs) adequate for protecting their assets from long-term care. So they think 
that just because it's a trust that they're fine and that it's even if it's been in there five years, well, it doesn't matter if it's a revocable trust and you could take it out tomorrow is if you can reach your hand in that pot to, to access your money, so can um, can others who need it, any form of a creditor. And so that is another misunderstood thing um, that they come to me and just their heart sinks because they thought they had a, a robust plan. Some of the other issues that people come to me with on their mind would be how to protect their house, especially when they have a community spouse. And so that is something that, again, there are some options. Um, people don't always think about the exceptions. There are additional ways to protect if they have had a caregiver that's a child living in their home or if there is a, a sibling living in their home. It can't be a grandchild. Again, there are very certain rules, but they come to me with issues um, relating to, to their home. And so we're trying to find a creative strategy to help them. Um, that it, for many people is their largest asset, but it's also the one that has the most independence and peace of mind wrapped into it. So helping people navigate that when it comes to Medicaid qualification and estate recovery um, is probably the single largest kind of um, topic. I think the hardest thing people have to deal with is when do they start making those plans? So if somebody is, you know, you know more than just like today that you're spending all of your money and you're you're leading towards Medicaid. When should people really start thinking about that? When they retire and think long term? When they retire is a good time to evaluate okay. because you're generally over 59 and a half. And so you would have access to money that has been saved into a retirement plan or mm -hmm. a qualified plan. And the reason why that's important is you can't pull, you can't put an IRA into a trust that is um, asset protected. And so you would have to pull the money out and pay the tax on that. Right. And you wouldn't want to pay the 10% penalty. You wouldn't, if you're in your prime earning years, you probably don't want to pay the income tax on that. So again, this is where the CPA is going like, oh no, keep it in there as long as possible because you want to defer the tax bill. And the financial planner is saying, oh, you'll lose the compounded benefits of having tax deferred savings. And then the attorney saying, yeah, but all of the family members passed at 70 from dementia. So you're 60 now, it's probably not too soon to start talking, right? right? And that's where the conversation can really happen to say what seems to be right based on what we know about this family right now. Um, if they come to me with all the, the primary asset being a bunch of rental property, it's a very different planning scenario. It's a lot easier to, to retitle that <laughs> land and to put it into a trust right. as opposed to a retirement account, which is what many folks here in Central Ohio have. Yeah. Um, we, don't, yeah. we don't have many farmers or land-rich um, people, again, it's different planning. But depending on the nature of the asset, depending on the amount of the asset, um, you can begin to strategically plan. And again, I, I find that 60s is a good time to start to do it. Um, yeah. It's never too, too late. I you know, received a call yesterday from someone in their, their 90s in a facility. Um, they have still a home that hasn't been sold yet. They're trying to figure out what to do with that 200000 that will be generated from that sale. And I can still help them. But again, we have fewer options. And they haven't necessarily lived the last 20 years with peace of mind that they've needed. True. Or could have benefited from, I should say. So, you know, there are other issues affecting older adults, uh, senior scams, elder abuse, even age discrimination in the workplace. Although these are not areas that you normally assist, do you have some tips or, or maybe resources for seniors and their family members that might be helpful. The Ohio Attorney General's office, Dave Yost's office, has some wonderful resources available, and they're dedicated to just this issue um, of helping seniors. There are, you know, information brochures about cyber smarts for older adults, um, but they also provide resources for recognizing and reporting um, patient abuse, elder abuse, and neglect. 
And so that is one place to go to where you should be able to trust some government officials. And uh, I have found that that's a very helpful. They have mm-hmm. a website and you you know and you can call. So that's a good place to start, and they can can get you to other places if if need if needed. So Lorraine, we have gone through so much today. It's amazing all of the bits and pieces. And and I, I guess I was just sitting here frantically writing some ideas in my head as as to what I'm hoping our our listeners heard. Over and above the what you just said about having peace of mind, you know, start thinking about the questions that you have. Try to um, not be fearful and really think about what are the what are, how how what do I need to do? How can I be prepared? Give us those tips, suggestions to our listeners and what they really need to pull together in their own mind for themselves, for older adults, older older um, older parents, and to also hand to their children and what their children need to be aware of. Well, I would say make those legally defined, legally binding decisions for yourself. Um, you can plan in advance because if you don't, again, the court will have to step in um, potentially. And I will also say make the decisions about what you want because even when families get along, um, disability or death can absolutely bring out the worst. And mm-hmm. Also, people are busy and you don't think, oh, my kid certainly wouldn't be the one to leave those important papers, right, um, in their mailbox for however many days or weeks on end, meaning to get to them. And so the more that you can do to make the arrangements yourself, no one can get out of this world without help, right? We're going to need help, whether it's, you know, someone signing off on the funeral bill, <laughs> to, like there's... Or handling your affairs, even showing up, like I said, with the death certificate to get the car in, in title and a new name. There, there is no one. It will happen. So the question is, how how involved do you want to be? Um, how much do you care about you know taking that burden off of others? The other thing I would say is knowledge is power, but when it comes to someone's estate, that's not enough. Learning about it isn't enough. You have to actually act upon it. So it's really knowledge plus action that can be the power you need to get over um, the planning hurdle that that face some people. They just you know can't can't plan in advance because there's no deadline, but there is. <laughs> right. You never know when you're going to have that moment where you need to have um, had some of the planning in place. Uh, and so the fact that there's no deadline it means some people it's really easy to put off and some people don't want to face it. But becoming um, well-versed in uh, the tools available, the consequences of not doing it, and and finding those who can help help you accomplish it and, and keep it up to date, uh, the law changes, mm-hmm. your family and circumstances change, uh, what assets you have that need a plan continue to change. And so um, keep getting it in place and keeping it up to date is really what you can do. You know, it, it, those transitions that we're going through, illness, death, they're emotional times. And that's not the time to make a decision. Right. And really it making, you know, being able to make those decisions for yourself is phenomenal. So people really need to make those decisions, do the work that needs to be done. And then when their family members are in in this emotional time and knowing that they need to protect that individual if they're ill or protect the estate if they're gone, um, it's better to be prepared. That's right. There's one document that I generally include in an estate plan called a disposition of bodily remains and funeral arrangements. And um, 
Sometimes people just say, I don't care, but let my kid decide. But even that is communicating something very powerful mm-hmm. because then your, your loved one isn't facing what would they have wanted? Right. Did they want cremated? Did they want buried beside their parents in their home, hometown cemetery? What, what did they want? And so if they're liberated to say, like, I get to pick what I find is going to be most peaceful for me as I mourn you, like, that's, that in and of itself isn't making a, a ton of decisions, but it's making a plan because then you've communicated something that's, that's potentially liberating or saying, I'm leaving you all of my things. I don't really mind what you keep and what you sell and what you do anything with. Right. Right? But I've made an arrangement for it to pass to you seamlessly. Again, it doesn't have to be a, an 80-page plan. It just has to be a plan um, if, if that's what you want. Knowledge plus action, right? You've got to take that step. And it's okay to not know where to begin. Um, we're, as trusted advisors, accustomed to people not knowing where to start. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to feel like you're the only one. Well, as we always do, you know, we'll have the resources and information available in the show notes and our website, lookingforwardourway.com. Lorraine, this has been great. I knew exactly what this was going to be, and this is exactly what it was going to be. Tons of information. And, 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 and if you listen to this episode and you're not moved to do something, you're not listening. Go back and listen again because, we're, as you said, we're all going to need help getting out of this. Not and, a lie, but getting out of this. And right. and it's really just communication and making it easier for your family right. at the end. And and we can't make an assumption that we know um, all of the issues. Um, I have an estate, but just listening to all of these bits and pieces, I'm making notes on going back to check in my estate. Okay, did I do this? Did I do that? So great. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. 